everyone. I'm Ana Maria, and I'm an activist with Reverse the Trend and the Nuclear Age Peace Foundation. Hi, I'm Leah. I'm also an activist with the NAPF and Reverse the Trend, and I'm a student at Tree University. Hi, I'm Shreya Ahir. I'm also an activist at NAPF and Reverse the Trend. Hi, everyone. This is Christian Chabanu. I'm the policy and advocacy coordinator of the Nuclear Age Peace Foundation and one of the project coordinators of Reverse the Trend to Save Our People, Save Our Planet. And welcome to the RTT Dissect Digest, where the future leaders of nuclear policy will be covering this year's convening of the United Nations General Assembly First Committee on International Security and Disarmament. For this episode, we'll be giving you guys a rundown of what happened at the tail end of committee and where we should look for the future of these types of conferences. Um, as you guys heard, I'm on the air here with a couple different activists from the Nuclear Age Peace Foundation and Reverse the Trend, as well as Christian Chognu, the Policy and Advocacy Director for the Nuclear Age Peace Foundation. Um, how's everyone feeling with the end of this year's session of First Committee? I think I think it's pretty, it's going, I think it went fairly well. There are some things that we can discuss, you know, as we progress with this, um, with this podcast. I felt that at this First Committee, um, the mission of Kiribati really stepped up and expressed their views about the importance of addressing, you know, victim assistance, environmental remediation, and some of the key resolutions. I was just about to say something really similar. Um, for me, this is kind of my first experience with the first committee, so it's been really eye-opening to see how um, Pacific states have been advocating and how different states have been also applying a gendered lens. And I think all of that self-advocacy is really constructive when it comes to talking about nuclear disarmament because you have to be intersectional about it. Um, I wanted to say, like, uh, with the Russian-Ukrainian invasion and conflict, like, this year was really important to talk about disarmament and being in the first comedian, like, actually understanding and uh, seeing how the countries were reacting and also like how nuclear states, nuclear weapon states were um, kind of like going away from the discussion or like distracting. Um, it was very like, it wasn't really good to see, but also like I understood um, basically the reality of how the UN systems work. To start, let's talk about some of the resolutions that were voted on in the last week of first committee. Um, starting off with resolution L16, which was titled Humanitarian Consequences of Nuclear Weapons. Just for some context, this resolution essentially affirmed that humanitarian consequences of nuclear weapons must be considered in national policies on the use of nuclear weapons, and it even states in Operative Clause 4, expresses its firm belief that awareness of the catastrophic consequences of nuclear weapons must underpin all approaches and efforts towards nuclear disarmament. As many of you know, it has been a fight within the nuclear disarmament field for nations, especially those with dark histories of nuclear testing, to even acknowledge the devastating impact of nuclear weapons. Because at the end of the day, how can one support nuclear arsenal development while at the same time considering the humanitarian consequences? Only once in this resolution does it even acknowledge the harms done by nuclear testing in a preambulatory clause that references the devastation caused by nuclear testing. Um, this is a question for all of you guys, given that I know that a lot of your advocacy work has to do with um, advocating for the 
universal recognition of the humanitarian consequences of nuclear weapons. I was just wondering what you guys think about this resolution and these types of resolution as a whole. Yeah, I think recognizing the humanitarian consequence is essential when we talk about nuclear disarmament and when we talk about nuclear weapons generally, because I think there is kind of this a tendency to intellectualize the the issue of nuclear disarmament and non-proliferation and to think about nuclear weapons as a tool of national security and something that states should have for their own benefit in terms of deterrence. But I don't think we actually talk enough about the humanitarian consequence um, just because when you actually learn about it, and this is something that I, I feel like I haven't explored as much before I started my advocacy with the NIPF and with Reverse the Trend, which is really eye-opening, is that um, the humanitarian response is kind of little to none. Like there's not much you can do once a nuclear blast is set. And so learning about that is a really big um, and important tool in advancing the non-nuclear, the non-proliferation regime. So I think those are those are excellent points that Leah um, just made. Um, I know with the resolution this year, we once again saw many of the NATO states um, vote against it, and the P3, France, the United Kingdom, and the U.S. Um, delivered an explanation of vote after the vote. Um, essentially, they said, and I'll highlight this paragraph as part of their you know in their statement that more than 50 years later, the NPT remains the cornerstone of the global disarmament non-proliferation architecture is one of the most universal treaties and continues to extend the benefits of the peaceful uses of nuclear energy, provide a framework for substantial disarmament and help prevent the proliferation of nuclear weapons. Its preamble lays out the consequences of concerns associated with the use of nuclear weapons, none of which are new some of those who continue to promote the humanitarian consequences narrative contend that nuclear disarmament can be achieved by prohibiting the possession and use of nuclear weapons now without an effective verification regime or even with those states in possession of the weapons even it or even if this those states in possession of the weapons do not sign up to and are not bound by the prohibition we found this approach that led to the treaty on the prohibition of nuclear weapons to be deeply flawed. So once again, even within the context of the humanitarian consequences resolution, which does refer to the TPNW, they are refusing to recognize the importance of that treaty as, and they're continuously trying to downplay it and saying that, oh, you know, it can never work because it doesn't have an effective verification, you know, you know, regime mechanism that you know you know the npt also does not have a verification regime associated with it so it's interesting the the, the statement and the body language that that they use during the um, discussions on the humanitarian consequences as well as the discussions regarding the tpnw yeah thank you christian for that insight um we talked a little bit more about the tpnw in the podcast episodes concerning the npt review conference back in august so for our listeners if you'd like more information please feel free to reference back to those episodes um and just as you were saying christian there was a lot of resol- there was a resolution passed in the first committee on the tpnw that 
just by the vote count seems to be one of the more divisive resolutions. Um, resolution L-17 titled Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons resulted in 124 countries voting yes, 43 voting no, and 14 abstentions. Of the countries that voted no on this resolution were the United States, the UK, China, DPRK, France, India, Israel, and Russia. Now, obviously, the no votes are populated with the nuclear weapons states, among others, but I was wondering if anyone had any more comments on why is the TPNW so controversial, specifically for nuclear weapons states? I think, again, that observation is really interesting because you have the P5 voting no um, in this resolution, and then you have states who are politically affected by this as well, um, which I'm sure results in the abstentions. But um, I think so often we forget that the UN is a political body. And for the, st the states that vote no, they see nuclear weapons and nuclear disarmament, the movement, a threat to their political regimes and to their national security. So I think it's upsetting when you frame this all in a political way, um, when, again, these are essential kind of um, humanitarian interests that are at stake here. You have like the future of international security and states are politicizing it. So I think it's interesting that that is so divisive that we can't all just agree that no, the future is what's most important, our collective security. What we have, what we have found though in the resolutions that some states have sh shifted their voting position. So for instance, Australia, which has traditionally voted against the resolution, chose this year to abstain on it, which is a sign, a clear sign that Australia is recalculating, rethinking its position on the TPNW. And especially it comes at a time that Australia has a new government in power, that labor, the labor is in power right now. And they want um, you know, they, they are more supportive of their, well, their stance is different and it's, and indicates that they're perhaps more open to the idea of the TPNW. And because of Australia's actions at the, um, at the first committee, the U.S. publicly warned, um, I don't say publicly, but warned Australia not to support the ban treaty. And there's a really great article out that's in The Guardian, written by ICANN Australia. And one of the um, directors of ICANN Australia, um, Jem Rolden, was the Australian director of ICANN, mentioned that, you know, it's no surprise the US does not want Australia to join the ban treaty, but it has, but it will have to respect our right to take a humanitarian stance against these weapons. So you see some slowly you see some shift amongst the states in terms of the TPNW and their willingness to reconsider their positions. And I think it's quite key that Australia shifted its position considering its relationship with the United States in the region in AUKUS. And slowly but surely, what we're trying to do is to get more states to vote yes on the, uh, on the resolution. So, Coming up again in December, they'll have an opportunity to vote on this resolution in the General Assembly Hall, and we're hoping that more states will vote in favor of the treaty of this resolution.
to another significant resolution that stirred up some strained exchanges in the first committee, and that is Resolution L2 titled The Risk of Nuclear Proliferation in the Middle East. This resolution did pass in the first committee, but of course prompted dialogue between Middle Eastern countries, namely Iran, Syria, Israel, and Egypt. In the debates surrounding this resolution, the delegation of Iran, Syria, and Israel seem to be going back and forth with accusations of, and to quote the delegates themselves, of being each their own strain of terrorist states. The committee room obviously became quite tense at times. I specifically remember one instance where, in Syria's right of reply to a statement made by Israel, the Syrian delegate stated, it would seem that the delegate of Israel is not aware of the bloody history that she represents. And these tensions were apparent in the final language of the resolution, where it specifically calls out Israel by name, stating that it reaffirms the importance of Israel's accession to the Treaty on the Non-Proliferation of Nuclear Weapons and placement of all its nuclear facilities under comprehensive IAEA safeguards and realizing the goal of universal adherence to the treaty in the Middle East. Nonetheless, Resolution L2 did pass in the first committee, regardless of the fact that five countries voted no on this resolution. Maybe unsurprisingly, these five countries included the United States and Israel, but also surprisingly included Canada, Micronesia, and Palau. Now, um, I'd like to hear your guys' thoughts on um, whether it be this resolution or the conference on the nuclear weapons free zone in the Middle East that just happened recently and what would you like to see within the future of you know our discourse around the nuclear weapons free zone and i just like any reflections that you have sure so thank you so much um anna maria for bringing up the annual resolutions on the middle east there's usually two of them l1 and l2 um these are annual resolutions which are proposed almost every year and yes, they seem controversial if you haven't been following the, um, the issues of international peace and security at the UN. The reason why Israel is explicitly called out in the resolution you mentioned, L2, is, is the reason is that, you know, Israel is the only country in the region that possesses nuclear weapons. It has a policy of opacity, meaning that it doesn't deny or confirm that it has nuclear weapons, and it's Israel's biggest um, open secret, so to speak. Um, there's a really fantastic Israeli expert named Avner Cohen, who has written several articles and books about Israel's worst kept secret, and that you know has to do with Israel's nuclear weapons and the Domona nuclear power, um, the, the power plant, the, the facility, the nuclear facility where they've built these weapons. Regarding the Middle East Conference, it is um, very important that it took place. The third session occurred in, um, in November, a few, a few um, days ago, actually. And the delegates spent most of their time really trying to finesse the language regarding verification and the technical issues regarding the creation of a treaty that would establish a zone free of weapons of mass destruction. And this idea of a zone is nothing new. It was first proposed, you know, way back when, I think 79 in the 80s. And then it was again um, linked to the indefinite extension of the NPT in 1995, co-sponsors being US, Russia, and United Kingdom. Um, it is it is unfortunate fortunate that within the context of the NPT, 
the um, you know the state parties could not agree on the you know on the establishment of a conference in the WMD free zone in the Middle East, which is why the state parties themselves took it out of the NPT. Well, found a way to negotiate it within you know a general assembly conference, and to pass it through the first committee, mandating themselves to have you know a series of of sessions to eventually lead to the creation of a WMD free zone. The only problem with all of this is really, and this is, you know, I understand the sensitivities from these countries, but the lack of transparency and lack of access for non-governmental organizations. And perhaps, Shreya, you can, you know, enlighten us about your feelings about being kept outside of the room. Well, yeah, I remember um, I was there at the nuclear weapon free zone conference for the Middle East, and um, we were waiting outside the conference room for around like four or five hours. And then even after that, we did not have a hope to get in. Um, like the delegates were coming outside and like uh, a few of other civil society members or delegates were asking them for the updates. But like uh, nobody knew what was exactly going on inside the room. And it was so um unusual for me um because it was my first time attending first committee and uh i saw like how the civil society was actually in like included in the in the discussion but when it came to middle east nuclear free zone conference um we were actually kept outside for like hours and hours so yeah it it was very tiresome and at the same time demotivating that civil society is not included and it's just the member states who are negotiating on the table. And this speaks to the UN process as a whole in terms of the lack of transparency and lack of inclusivity with the NGOs. I think it's very important that the NGOs are in the room so the state, you know, so, so member states can hear their views and also be able to work in cooperation because, you know, if the UN does not engage in an inclusive manner with with the member state with the ngos it's very hard to a raise awareness about you know what the un is doing but b more importantly the public transparency the public trust in the un gets eroded and like i understand the importance and the technical aspects of the treaty and the fact that the first session was open to ngos and to civil society but it really is important for all these conferences to be kept open for NGOs, especially for youth, even from the region, to come in and express themselves on these critical issues. So I'll pass the floor either, you know, to um, to Anna Maria or Omar for, you know, for final thoughts. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, I definitely agree on the point of including civil society and especially youth voices and UN conferences like this, you know, a lot of the issue that we heard with in more at the NPT review conference was that um, a lot of civil society members were very open and uh, willing to hear the voices of youth activists and people that wanted to be involved in the nuclear weapons space. And we've seen a significant shift from that kind of collaborative dynamic to the one that we see now in these more official um, and diplomatic and maybe a little bit more politicized uh, meetings of the first committee and the um, meeting on the Middle East, which happened just last week. Um, so, yeah, Omar, do you have any thoughts on and final reflections on either first committee or any of the conferences we've been to? 
how it's currently structured shows us now as youth activists and people engaged in civil society, you know, how we can better integrate that exchange of ideas and integrate civil society perspectives, you know, into the first committee and into the legal apparatus and the political apparatus. Um, and that's something that is crucial to work upon. Well, thank you everyone for participating in this episode of the RTT Dissect Digest, uh, the final episode at that. And thank you to our listeners. Um, and with this, we conclude our final episode of our RTT podcast on 2020's first committee session. Thank you all for listening and stay tuned for future episodes by Reverse the Trend. Thank you so much, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.